Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Good to have you on the show, Jacob. How are you doing? Thank you so much. I'm doing well. I appreciate you having me on. Amazing. I know we've tried to get this uh, episode recorded earlier, but we had some emergencies. I'll give a quick introduction for our listener. Jacob Jolibois is the founder of Czech. And uh, we are always uh, welcomed when we talk to someone who has bootstrapped their company. But Czech is an early stage SaaS company that helps service operators streamline and automate their business. As simple as this. I think you found a Czech four years ago, and now you have more than 15,000 users, which is impressive. Take us back to the founding AHA moment. How did it all shape up four years ago? Of course. And I actually want to take a quick moment just to say that I'm not the only founder. My co-founder was the one who kind of initially brought the company together and we started it, you were correct, four years ago. So the initial way this came about was my co-founder was had this idea that he was mulling on that was essentially Uber for lawn care. And we wanted to build something that made it easy for homeowners to quickly get their yard mowed without a lot of hassle. Uh, and there were a few other companies out there in the moment that were doing something similar, but there was still some hoops they had to jump through that we thought we could simplify. The other part of the equation that wasn't getting paid a lot of attention to was how these companies would treat the actual professionals performing the services. And they would typically take a large cut. It made it difficult for these guys to you know, scratch a living. So what we wanted to do was change that and make it easier for them to have a steady flow of work while also being able to make pretty good money. So we started that up and about a year in, <laughs> we had the revelation after talking with hundreds and hundreds of operators that these guys were proud of the businesses that they built and rightly so. They had built something that was putting food on the table, that was serving people well and that they were proud of and they didn't want to give up running their own businesses to work for kind of this gig operation sort of job. And we wanted to respect that. But one thing that they told us over and over again was that they loved the tech. So one year in, we actually pivoted from the Uber model of gig workers to automating their back office with really advanced technology, but allowing them to maintain full ownership of their business, their data, their clients, their book of business, that sort of thing. And so we've been working on that for the last three years. So essentially you were a marketplace and then you switched to a software provider. So it's very interesting in this model that the convincing part of the customer, because you're asking them to pay before they see actually the results. So how did you overcome that? Of course, there are customers who were, as you said, you interviewed them, they wanted it, that's great. But there's the other part because you have like 15,000 yeah. now. So what was your strategy here on how to sell your value proposition? Sure. This is definitely a difficult part of the equation. Thankfully, it's not super difficult because about 50% of the industry still uses pen and paper. 
And when you consider that, the jump from pen and paper to digitizing that notebook is leaps and bounds better in terms of staying organized, automating your workflows, looking professional. All of these things are quite an easy sell when it comes down to you know, making that decision. Now, here's the rub. If you're the type of person that enjoys pen and paper, what do you enjoy about that? You enjoy that it's easy to write something down. You enjoy that you understand the system in your head and you have full control over your information. The downfall is that if you're trying to find something, flipping through your pages of your notebook takes a long time. If you're trying to edit something, you have to either erase or scratch out with a pen or just start over completely. There's pros and cons. So we wanted to eliminate the cons, make it really easy to find your information, make it really easy to edit your information. But we also wanted to maintain some of those values from the notebook that they loved. How do we make it super simple? How do we give them control over how they organize things? And how do we make it fast and almost mindless? It's so simple. So that was kind of the focus of, of Check and it has been to this day. Everything we do is about making it incredibly simple, incredibly beautiful, incredibly fast. Amazing. Take us back to the early few customers. What was your acquisition strategy back then? And is it still the case? Have you used any techniques that are not scalable early, but you stopped using them today? Take us back to that time. Sure. As a first-time founder, hearing uh, what was your strategy is pretty funny because <laughs> we didn't have much of a strategy. We literally scraped Nextdoor, Craigslist, and Google for as many operators in our local area that we could find. And we just picked up the phone and started calling. That was the acquisition strategy. We didn't have anything sophisticated. We didn't try to you know, ramp up and scale through programmatic SEO or anything like that. And since then, our acquisition strategy has evolved, but effectively has kind of taken different forms based on what we realized the market needed. So the first step was calling people. That's obvious. Just got to get on the phone. The second step was trying to provide value to them that was meeting them where they were at. So a lot of these guys that we were serving were one truck operations. And these one truck operations are hard pressed to find the right material on how to run that sort of business. So we started writing blog posts and creating videos and creating a podcast and putting out all of this content for free and just pointing people to it. Because if they could learn to trust us based on the value we're offering, hopefully they would also be willing to trust the product that we're building. And then more recently, we have shifted into a sales-driven model that is supported by content. But once again, coming full circle, we're back to dialing and just hopefully picking up the phone and getting to talk to these people face-to-face. If you go back to that time where it's more of a founder-led strategy, so you're picking the phone, yeah. you're getting rejections a lot. I'm pretty sure people oh, would sure. say, okay, I don't know who you are, but I'm not interested. So tell us what has worked for you or what have you learned that you kept in your sales playbook? What have you unlearned? Because that's something that probably you shouldn't be doing. And then if you can go back in time, what you would you have done different? This is really tough. I can tell you what we've kept for sure. And that is the authenticity. There's something about salesmanship that feels a little scammy. 
and people can smell it a mile away. Especially these guys who are kind of the no BS type of guys that just want to get the work done. They don't want to be sold to. They want to be heard. Honestly, they want a friend. They want to know that they can trust the person other end of the phone call. As first-time founders who had had zero prior sales experience in our early days, what we were really good at was just being normal, <laughs> just being human. And so we pick up the phone and we just tell them straight up what we were doing, why we were doing it. We wanted to help them. And then we'd ask them a bunch of questions. We were genuinely curious because we weren't in their shoes. We had to figure that out by asking them. And then one of the things that I applaud my co-founder for is he actually started his own home service business in order to understand the pain points of our users. And he ran that for a little over a year. And that really got us closer to where they were at in their founder journey. And I think we've done a good job of holding on to that value, even as we've layered on more sales processes and tried to create more of a sales machine within the business. Um, we still love talking to our users, picking up the phone. In fact, we text them a lot too. And if you look through my phone, I've marked every customer with a green check mark emoji. Probably 60% of my text messages, if you scroll through, are those green check marks because we're constantly texting and calling and trying to genuinely be of service to our users. Some things maybe I wouldn't have done in the beginning is tried to sell so hard. I think I maybe would have asked them what their pain points were sooner. Um, that's something that as a early founder, what you really want to do is make that sale, right? And so you're pushing it a little harder. But what you really need to be doing is asking your customers what they need, because that's how you're going to build out a product roadmap that actually matters. That's how you're going to learn what kind of language they use when it comes to marketing, how do you phrase what you're selling in a way that they resonate with? So that's probably what I would change if, if I could do things differently. This is spot on and I could share a little bit of the things that I've learned as well since I'm, I'm a founder and you have to do that founder-led sales initiative at the beginning so you could pave way for the rest of the people who, who are joining. And what I've noticed sure. is talking to the customer and flushing out the pain point is extremely important but what has also worked for us is to highlight the impact of the pain point so it's not just the pain point but the impact so that they could visualize in their head that if the solution that we're offering you've missed out on it this is the impact that you're still going to feel from that pain it's not just the pain because sometimes customers get accustomed to a habit they have been doing they live with that pain because the habit solves that right. pain but it's not quite good so if you highlight out the impact of the pain that becomes even a much more powerful story so that, right. that has worked quite well for us where when we're honing our sales let's say uh, pitch yep. jacob one question for you what has been the yeah the most challenging part of that journey what has been the hardest part of building check Wow, that's a, a tough question because, <laughs> as you probably know, startups are an emotional roller coaster, right? And I feel like there's a, a hard moment every other month, maybe every other week, honestly. And I think that the hardest part has been 
whenever you get in a position where you think you're doing everything right and the results aren't coming, how do you get through that? How do you find the answers? How do you say, okay, I thought this was the answer. We executed well, and yet we're still not seeing churn reduce. We're still not seeing revenue increase. We're still not seeing our acquisition channels pay off. Whatever the case is, those moments are incredibly difficult. Emotionally, it just feels like utter defeat. And that's one thing that we had to learn really early on and still to this day is the emotional and mental resilience to push through those tough times and keep looking for the answer. It's so easy to want to shut down and say, I thought this was the answer. Why isn't it working? But the answer is still out there. You just got to keep looking. It takes a lot of work sometimes. You touch on an important topic and I would like to know how you overcome that because a lot of entrepreneurs, they suffer sometimes from imposter syndrome. They have the ability, sure. they have the capability, but the confidence shatters them. And now they start doubting their abilities and that could lead to making bad decisions or quitting. So as you're walking through that emotional roller coaster, are there any tips or tricks or frameworks that you follow to stay on top of your game? Yes. So there's a bunch of different frameworks and tips out there that I've read. But honestly, what works the best for me is I need to get my priorities right. When it comes down to it, my business is not my top priority. Whenever it feels like the world is crushing me, that's because I've made it my top priority. And that sense of failure gets overwhelming. I need to get my priorities straight. And what that looks like is I need to recenter with my faith. So I'm, I'm a Christian. And I need to get back in line with my priorities around my service to God and others. Next, my family. How am I serving my wife well? How am I making sure that I'm a present husband and not getting so deep into my own mind and my own despair that I'm ignoring her needs? Getting outside and enjoying time with friends, it's remarkable. That's like what most people want in life is to enjoy their time with friends. And work simply facilitates the ability to have money to go do those things with friends or whatever the case may be. So sometimes you just need to get away from the computer and put down the phone and like go play some sports or go for a run or go out to a dinner with some buddies. Those things really bring me back to what's important in life and once those things are straightened out, it's much easier to come back to a problem that is now feels very small and say, okay, let's tackle it. It's a new day. We've got new answers to find. So let's go figure those out. Amazing. Thank you for sharing this. You have a newsletter, which I'm subscribed to making product sense. And uh, you have a very interesting article. Of course, very, very good content, uh, which I would uh, definitely advise people to subscribe to it. You have around 3,500 subscribers. Take us back to tactical strategies that you've deployed to have people sign up. I know you've written an an extensive article about the good, the bad, and the ugly, and that consistency is key. You have to write, you have to put out good content, and people would come. But is there anything that you have pushed non-organically that has worked for you, which other newsletter founders could, you know, benefit from them? Yes. So as you already mentioned, consistency and quality. If you're not delivering on those two things, no matter what tips and tricks you try to pull, it's just not going to stick. People are going to churn. 
But the one thing that I did early on that has been really, really beneficial is I've started building relationships with other newsletter writers on the platform I'm on. So if you're writing on Substack or you're writing on Beehive or any of these other newsletter platforms that have built-in network effects, you want to be able to take advantage of those network effects. And typically that is by relationships with other newsletters who will recommend you and you recommend them. And as a result of that, I've actually built some really beautiful friendships out of this, you know, initial cold outreach to other newsletters that I really enjoyed reading. And now these guys who write them are my friends. And that's really cool. With Substack in particular, because they have a unique recommendation engine, it's not algorithm based, it's personal relationship based. So you as the writer can actually recommend other newsletters that you enjoy and you read. And then, of course, you want them to do the same to you. So what I did early on was I went through maybe 50 to 60 different newsletters and just found the ones whose content I really enjoyed, subscribed to them, read them for a few weeks. And then once I felt like I understood the content that author was writing about and the value they brought to the table and things they were interested in, then I just DM'd them on Twitter and said, hey, I really love your content. I would love to connect. We typically hop on a Zoom call. You know, it'd be 20, 30 minutes, not long. And during that time, I just get to know them and try to genuinely be their friend. And then if it felt like it was right, I would ask, hey, would you like to do a recommendation swap? If they were down for it, we would you know, make those mutual recommendations and that drove a lot of early traffic. There are cases where that isn't a good fit, in which case some people may try to force it. I would say don't force it because if someone who isn't a good fit with your content and your audience is recommending you, then they're going to learn not to trust your recommendations as well. So you really want to curate that and make sure that you're connecting with the people who you really enjoy and you think adds value to your audience as well. So that was probably the biggest one. Amazing. We'll definitely will benefit from this technique. What is a business principle or a life principle that you live by that has helped you on your entrepreneurial journey? I've already mentioned prioritization. That's obviously a big one. So my second one would be simplicity. And the reason I say that is because, especially someone like me, it's easy to get distracted by a million different things. And so I, I constantly find myself coming back to, you know, what are the things that are going to have higher payoff in the future, the things that I enjoy the most and give me a lot of life when I participate in them, and then stripping away everything else. So I guess this is prioritization, but tactically. A lot of times I will try to fill in the gaps if the main thing I'm working on isn't working well, I'll fill in the gaps with other projects in order to feel like something's working well. well. Most of the time, those things don't matter. And so I'll need to just strip those away, try to get back to the root and simplify my focus. Amazing. One last question, Jacob. What's next for you and for Czech? It's a great question. Something I'm always asking. For me, what's next is more of the same. I plan to continue writing the newsletter. I plan to continue building Czech and I plan to continue spending time with my family. As far as what's next for Czech, we have a lot of exciting stuff in the works right now. We are in the middle of building out the web app, uh, which will allow a lot of operators who have slightly larger operations and have office assistants or admins 
to be able to access all of that information from the browser at their workstation. Beyond that, I'm going to play that a little closer to the chest. We do have some amazing ideas coming in the future, but we don't want to give that away too soon. Thank you for stopping by, Jacob. How can people reach you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, you can subscribe to the newsletter, Making Product Sense. And you're welcome to friend me on LinkedIn, which is where Hattie and I connected. So uh, you can find all of those just by going to Making Product Sense. I think my socials are connected in my bio. But yeah, makingproductsense.com, that's the best place to start. And if you'd like to check out Check, uh, if you are in the home service world or you know somebody who would benefit from a really good CRM system, you can go to hellocheck.co. Amazing. Thank you, Jacob. We wish you the best of luck on your venture and in your newsletter as well. Thank you so much, Hattie. I appreciate the opportunity. It was a blast. Catch you next time. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers. 